This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Hemingway, Eichmann, Stranger in a Strange Land, Dylan, how does it feel? I want you, I want you. Oh my God, it's like being in the studio (laughs) with the man himself. (laughs) Hello and welcome to episode 85 of We Didn't Start the Fire, a song that's become a podcast that's a history lesson about all the biggest, strangest and most beautiful stories that shaped our world. Billy Joel drew our crazy route map. We just follow wherever it goes. Cold War, hot movie stars, big dogs, dirty dogs, tragedies and triumphs. I am Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie's school is out. Billy is once again in. Oh, he is so in. And I'll tell you, who else has never, in fact, gone out? And that is Bob Dylan, the subject of today's podcast. Tell us, oh, Tom Fordyce. <laughs> What are your thoughts on Dylan? As if I didn't already know. (laughs) (laughs) So I uh, I think my first exposure was through my mum, who was a massive Joan Baez fan. So my mum grew up on the Essex marshes where very little was going on. One of eight children in an unheated farmhouse. And she took solace in an acoustic guitar and sitting on the seawall looking out at the North Sea, um, pretending she was Joan Baez. And obviously Joan Baez, I think sometimes doesn't get overlooked, but in Bob Dylan's life, there seem to be various women who get reduced to the role of muses, despite the fact they're outstanding artists on their own. So that was my first entry point to Bob. And then, Katie, as you and I have been discussing before today's episode, we've had problematic relationships with Bob, haven't we? (laughs) We do. We love Bob's songwriting, don't we? He's a great toe tapper. He's a composer of ditties, if they are performed by other people. (laughs) Shall we do the list now or later, Katie, of Bob Dylan songs, which we prefer sung by other people? I quite like Olivia Newton-John singing If Not For You. That's a gentle little hind-quartered smusher together. (laughs) I like George Harrison's version of the same song. Yeah, that's very nice. Of course, the birds doing any number of... Single Bob Dylan song. <laughs> yeah. I will also lob into the mix All Over Now, Baby Blue, mm. uh, by them, Feach, Van yeah, Morrison. Van Morrison, that is just exquisite. Um, the Hollies have done covers PJ Harvey, Lulu, William Shatner. Uh, oh, yeah. Jimi Hendrix all along the watchtower. Now, my first exposure to Dylan was through my older brother David's excellent collection of 45s. He had any number of Northern Soul classics, which were not considered Northern Soul, because this was, in fact, in the mid-60s before they were deemed Northern Soul. And he also had a 45 of Rainy Day Women, number 12 and 35, which was from Blonde on Blonde. Everybody must get stone. (laughs) And then also like a Rolling Stone, which was from Highway 61 Revisited. And as a little kid, these were a little bit too harsh Mm. for me to get. But I was intrigued because he was so kind of slapdash in his delivery, kind of conversational. So I felt like aesthetically they were a little little, uh, I don't know, pebble dash rather than smooth marble in terms of 
easy pop listening, but they did capture my imagination. Tom, you and I both have kind of conflicting relationships with Bob Dylan, which is why we need a mediator. And that person is the august and esteemed Canadian actor and writer who also, quite conveniently for our purposes, co-hosts the podcast Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan. It is Carrie Shale. Welcome. Hello, and thank you so much. Thank you so much. Now, confirm or deny, Carrie Shale, <laughs> Maureen Dowd, the New York Times writer, says that Bob Dylan shakes hands like a dead fish. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I've never shaken hands with Bob Dylan, and I'm sure I never will, but I'm sure that's true. Apparently, it's a power play. The main thing that I have to say about Dylan, we can all go home after this, okay. <laughs> is that he's, by all accounts, deeply Weird. He's a weird little guy. He's re been referred to on our podcast as, he's a weird little guy. This is people who've worked with him, people, people who know him. When he met uh, Barack Obama to get the Presidential Medal of Freedom at the White House, mm. and then afterwards they said, so what was it like? What was it like meeting Bob Dylan? They said to the President of the United States, yeah. and he said, <laughs> he never said a word to me. Like, we were backstage... Uh -oh. He never said a word to me. And, and, but Obama, being a big Dylan fan, oh, said, God. that's exactly what I expected. All right. Because he's a weird little guy. He didn't say that. <laughs> no. But because we all know he's, that's his unique um, selling point. That's his unique power. I, I think that the main misconception about uh, Bob Dylan, I think, that people have is they, they kind of treat him like he's a regular guy. And we, we had one me guy on our podcast who said, he's just a regular guy. He goes to basketball games. He's not, a, he's not weird at all. No, I beg to differ. Yeah. He's weird. And, and he should be weird. Like William Shakespeare would have been a weird little guy. It's, yeah. the, it's the same thing. There are so many, Kerry, for me, contradictions with Bob Dylan. And this goes right back to the start, you know, this idea that he is singing an authentic form of music, folk music, but he's invented his background and his persona mm -hmm. all the way through to this, this idea that some people have called him a plagiarist, yet he refers to this as, well, we're always borrowing things from different traditions. Mm -hmm. So uh, try and get into my head at the start. In the period of, of Bob Dylan, we think we're talking about in this song, so the beginnings of his fame... What sort of man is he? Do we really know at all? We know his background, right? So he, he was born in uh, Duluth, Minnesota, um, and he was raised from the age of six in a nearby town, Hibbing, Minnesota, which was a mining town, but which had quite a bit of money, uh, in, certainly in its past. So the, the Hibbing High School, if you've seen pictures of it, is gigantic. It's like their, their main uh, auditorium is huge, and they had a really great music section. But the thing that that people need to know, because I'm actually from, I'm from about 200 miles north of where Bob Dylan's from. So oh, I'm, wow. I'm also from the North Country. In the winter, you spend all your time inside, and you'll spend uh, six months or eight months inside. And so there's a lot of time to read books, watch TV, or if you're Bob Dylan, be a little genius who, I think he discovered Woody Guthrie during his first year of university, his only year of university in Minneapolis. So somebody somewhere put on a Woody Guthrie record and that changed everything because before that he was a rock and roller. And this is also something people don't realize when, you know, eventually will come to when he reinvented rock and roll. He was a rock and roller. I mean, he loved Little Richard. He, he worshipped Buddy Holly. He worshipped, worshipped Elvis. And when Elvis died, Dylan went into 
mourning for a week. Oh. He didn't speak to anybody. He was destroyed by Elvis's death. And so what was it about Woody Guthrie that made him mm. go, boing, I need to like just reset my compass here to this Dust Bowl music? Mm. The folk music of the time, first of all, it was very political, and Dylan, despite denying it, was for a time very political. I mean, when he gets into something, he gets into it, and he did get into politics, and then he got out of it. Woody Guthrie was, was playing, you know, his music was from Irish and Scottish and Appalachian, and Appalachian music is from Irish and Scottish mm-hmm. folk tunes. It's what Greil Marcus, the critic, um, the eminent Bob Dylan critic, calls the old weird America. Right. It's uh, dark fables where roses grow out of people's brains and lovers turn into swans and anything is possible. So it's not like a patriotic nostalgia for make America great again not at or all. something no, like no, that. No, no, it's much more sort of 18th and 17th century Ballads with, okay. with, I mean, Dylan was very much into uh, knights errant, or he was. He was also very. He said that he wanted to go to West Point. He wanted to be a soldier. Oh my gosh! Uh, when, when he was a kid, that's that's what he said. But also, I must say, don't believe anything Bob Dylan says. Interesting. <laughs> I mean, really, do not believe anything he says. Well, it sounds like he's a bit of a, a romantic as a boy and as a teenager, mm. like mm. almost a bit of a goth. You know, if you're getting into roses growing out of people's craniums, et cetera. Because <laughs> I, I did think that was interesting, that contrast of, you know, he's coming of age at the very beginning of rock and roll, and yet he's going, oh, no, let's go back a few decades and listen to this old-timey stuff. Is it, I wondered if it was some sort of search for an essential truth or an authenticity. I, I have a bit of trouble with the word authenticity mm. as regards Bob Dylan. Okay. Because that's what he was sort of pilloried for, which was giving up his authenticity. But I think he was always very authentic to himself, Mm. but not to the, say, the folk music tradition. As Joan Baez says, nobody ever saw Dylan on a march. Um, Joan Baez marched, Phil Oaks marched, Mm. uh, most of the rest of them marched. But Dylan was at famous marches, like he was at the March on Washington. He sat just more or less beside Martin Luther King with Joan Baez and performed at the March on Washington. And so that was pretty political. But, you know, at the same time, he he was always Bob Dylan. And and that's something bigger than than politics in a way. And Kerry, he seems to, from the very start, have been one of the great borrowers. Now, pop music is all about borrowing things, borrowing sounds, looks, influences. Bob Dylan seems to have done that from the very start, from girlfriends from authors from musical traditions yes absolutely and then you know later on uh, people said oh he's a plagiarist but he's always he's always borrowed i mean he's always worn masks really i mean dylan is very big into masks uh, in a recent documentary he said i wouldn't trust anyone who doesn't wear a mask oh Okay, yeah. that's flipping that whole idea of authenticity on its head. Well, exactly. He says there's 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 no such thing. And in 1975, when he uh, went out and did his Rolling Thunder tour, which there's a film of it on Netflix, you know, he, he covers his face with, with white in a sort of a Poirot sort of mask thing. Yeah. Um, uh, in fact, the, the entire thing, it's great if you haven't watched it because... He's with, um, it's the the band's final... No, this isn't the band one. This oh. is his his Rolling Thunder tour in 75. Oh, yeah. He has toured with the band, but this is his next tour. He's touring with Allen Ginsberg and uh, Ramblin' Jack Elliott and Roger McGuinn and Joni Mitchell joins the tour. And when the Martin Scorsese made his documentary... With Bob Dylan, although we've never really figured out, because nobody said how much input Bob Dylan had, they invented a whole fake 
made-up storyline where Sharon Stone, who was interviewed in the um, documentary, joined the tour. And and Bob Dylan told her that he wrote just like a woman for her, and so it's Sharon Stone, the actress. Yeah, go watch it. It's on Netflix. Okay. Sharon Stone tells this. She's featured in the documentary, and uh, they show a picture of her um, with her mom meeting Bob Dylan yeah. backstage. And then he says, "Why don't you come on the tour with us?" She says, "Well, what'll I do?" He says, "Oh, you can sue. You know, do do it if you like." And so, uh, but I, I hope I don't spoil it for you. But that's one of the things that is completely fake in the documentary, which is really what Bob Dylan is all about. He's a trickster. He's a trickster. So even his name was borrowed, wasn't it? Yes, and he's never explained. Some people say it's Dylan Thomas. He at one point said that it was Matt Dylan, the character of the um, sheriff on Gunsmoke. But that's D-I-L-L-O-N, isn't it? Yes, it is. But um, Bob says he's what he fabulous. wants. He's a fabulist. He's a fabulous. That's yes. a great word. Exactly. Um, his first, uh, his name is Robert Allen Zimmerman, um, and his roots are, are Jewish. His family was from um, uh, one side was from the Ukraine, the other side was from Lithuania. His father Abe owned an electrical store in uh, Hibbing, Minnesota. And uh, it was a pretty lower middle class, uh, verging on middle class childhood. Nothing special about the childhood. Let's talk about how Bob makes his way to Greenwich Village. How does he get his hindquarters out of Hibbing? Uh, He hitchhikes. He hitchhikes to New York. He doesn't really talk very much about it. He shows up there in 1961. And it's uh, Kennedy's president and uh, the new frontier and everything is progressive and sexy and hopeful and there's civil rights, there's social justice and folk music is the new thing, uh, especially for East Coast progressive types. I mean, there's all sorts of other music going on at the time. In 1961, um, Let's Twist Again was number one. So that wasn't exactly socially progressive. It was a fun you know, Chubby Checker, dude. another yeah. subject of a... Yeah. yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. When he got to New York, he told people that he was raised in Gallup, New Mexico. Oh. That he uh, <laughs> grew up traveling with a carnival or a rodeo, depending on who he talked to, and that his parents were dead. Oh. Yeah, he told people his parents were dead. Even when his parents, actually, when he was first playing Carnegie Hall, he gave a radio interview that day saying, yeah, you know, my parents are dead, I'm an orphan. His parents actually were going to be in the audience at Carnegie <laughs> Hall that night. Oh. So, yeah, fantasist, fabulist. Uh, when he came to um, Greenwich Village in 61, he played what they called the basket houses. In other words, they just passed a basket okay. after you played for free. And he drank cappuccino at the Cafe Reggio, and he saw Brecht plays, and he slept on floors, and he read lots of poetry. He was also quite n- well-known for stealing uh, anything he could find from books to records. Like people would say, there's one guy who was interviewed on uh, No Direction Home. They, again, it's a Martin Scorsese documentary, a terrific documentary. Uh, they interviewed the guy, and he said, I, I got back, and there were 25 albums missing. Oh, after Dylan that's a lot of stealing. <laughs> yeah, he he's would, not a borrower. Yeah, no, and, he, and they, they asked him about it, and he said, you know, well, I just felt that I had to, I had to take possession of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, felt, I don't know if that's going to cut a dash with the judge. <laughs> but that's... That's who he was. He was, a, he was a weird little guy. Yeah. So why does it work for him in that period in Greenwich Village? Why does he stand out? Well, did you guys ever see um, Inside Lewin Davis, the Coen Brothers movie? I was just thinking of exactly that. Did yes. you see it? Yeah. I need to see it. Uh, it is a great movie. And it's basically about a guy who could be Bob Dylan, but he isn't Bob Dylan. Like, he sings the songs about uh, roses growing out of people's brains. <laughs> and he sings them very well. And he's played by uh, Oscar Isaac, right? So he's sexy and he's, he's funny and he's interesting. But he doesn't really have that thing. 
And he was based on this folk singer named Dave Van, Van Ronk, who taught uh, Dylan a lot of folk songs, and a lot of what he knows was stolen from Dave Van Ronk. But at the end of Inside Lewin Davis, Lewin Davis being the name of the main character, he goes, he leaves the room, and just as he's leaving, you can see the silhouette of this young guy stepping onto the stage. And, uh, you know, he sings, How many roads was to me? <laughs> actually, actually, he doesn't sing that, but he's got what it takes. You know, Dylan has what nobody else has. You know, Dylan is Dylan, and you can't really explain, you know, how it came to be. But he was helped by one particularly favorable review, was he? Yes, that he would have made it anyway, I think. Uh, but uh, he'd been in New York for nine months, so it's September 1961. He's still only 20. Mm. And he's only been there for nine months. You know, some people lived and died there. You know, they never got their break. Uh, a, a guy named Robert Shelton came to review, not the Dylan show, because Dylan was supporting a group called the Greenbrier Boys, who we've never heard of again. <laughs> so he was just, he, not just second, on, he was the bottom of the bill. And this appeared in the New York Times. I've got it here. Uh, Mr. Dylan is both comedian and tragedian. His music making has the mark of originality and inspiration, all the more noteworthy for his youth. Mr. Dylan is vague about his antecedents and mm. birthplace, but it matters less where he has been than where he is going, and that would seem to be straight up. Whoa. And he lands a record deal with Columbia right after that. Is that right? Yeah, I know. And it's um, Columbia is this huge record label. Yeah. He'd been turned down by, because he was a hustler. He, he was hustling all over the place. And he'd been t- turned down by um, Vanguard Records, where, which had Joan Baez. You know, so it was the big folky label. And a couple of other uh, record labels. And then he was picked up by Columbia, the biggest record label there is. Yeah. And, uh, and they got behind him. And his first album was a complete... Flop. Oops. I think it was ahead of its time because I uh, I think it's a really great album. It's just called Bob Dylan. Yeah. It apparently only sold 5,000 copies in the first pressing, but of course now you can get it anywhere. And basically what he did, because he's so perverse, Bob, this is one of the things I just love about him. <laughs> so he's got this big record deal. John Hammond is producing it. John Hammond discovered and gave contracts to Billie Holiday and people like that. You know, he, oh, wow. he was a legend. Yeah. Uh, and so he basically put Bob in front of a microphone. First of all, Bob refuses to learn microphone technique. <laughs> he's never learned microphone technique. He doesn't believe in... So he pops his peas, and he, was, mm-hmm. he would be popping his peas. He hits the microphone. He keeps hitting the microphone stand. He's, he's all about authenticity. He's all about being in the moment, and he's not about, you know, reining it back. In fact, even on, in Blood on the Tracks, which I'm sure we'll talk about, yeah. you can hear, if you listen not even that closely, the buttons on his jacket hitting his guitar. Oh. And that's just the way he's, he's always been. So all, another thing that he did that I just read about recently is he came in with a bunch of songs that he'd been re- performing in clubs and decided, you know what? To hell with it. I know those songs too well. I'm going to do a bunch of songs that I've never performed or have only performed once or twice. <laughs> so he picks out, one of the ones he picks out is The House of the Rising Sun, okay. which Dave Van Ronk taught him. And without asking Dave Van Ronk, because it's, it's, Dave Van Ronk's arrangement was very idios, idiosyncratic. So he does the Dave Van Ronk 
arrangement. Yeah. Then he bumps into Dave Van Ronk a couple weeks later, and he says, uh, Oh, Dave, uh, you know that arrangement has the raising sin? Uh, do you mind if I uh, take Could I use that sometime? And he says, uh, Well, Bob, uh, I was going to put it on my new album. And he said, Ooh. <laughs> <I> already, <laughs> Too late. I already did that. But, and then the irony is that that arrangement that Bob Dylan did, which was ignored, really, when his album came out, was heard by Eric Burden. Ah. And that's the arrangement the animals used oh. for their... You know, they're huge. Bing, 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 yeah. bing, bing. So it's funny how these things work. And so stealing from one guy to another guy to another guy. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, Fire listeners. It's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash WDSTF. As in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com slash WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So last night I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I want to get a sense of who his peers are in this scene. How competitive 
are they with each other? There must have been so much jealousy and so many truly talented artists who, for whatever reason, didn't make it up the ladder. Some of them did, obviously, like like Joan Baez, who he was, I guess, romantically involved in. Yeah. But who else was there floating around in the firmament? Well, there's all sorts of people that you wouldn't have heard of. But I, one of the people that you might have heard of is uh, Tiny Tim. Oh. Bob used to hang out backstage with Tiny Tim. Tiptoe through the tulips. Yes, exactly. Because uh, Tiny Tim was deeply weird and ahead of his time as well. Yeah. Um, and those are the people we remember. Uh, Tom he Paxton, pl- you might remember. Tiny Tim had the long hair and played the ukulele and sang in this really strange falsetto that was exactly. very quavery. Exactly. Uh, you know, so he eventually did make it. And Tom Paxton was was doing very well. Uh, there's a woman named Carolyn Hester who Bob Dylan uh, did his first recording session for. He played uh, harmonica on one of her albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, Phil Oaks. Uh, and, of course, uh, Dave Van Ronk. And there's, there's, there's many of them, but, you know, you probably wouldn't have heard of them because most of them didn't make it. There was, of course, Peter, Paul, and Mary who were... Oh, yeah. They were bumming around individually, and then they were put together by... Albert Grossman. Right. And their names weren't Peter, Paul, and Mary. It was, there, was, there was Peter and Mary, and then he just renamed the other guy Paul because he, <laughs> he wanted a group called Peter, Paul, and Mary. And they were all turned into these clean cut. I mean, they were just... They were kind of preppy. They, yeah, but they were dirty, scruffy folkies like everybody else. Right. I mean, if you're, most of these people were sleeping on floors and, yeah. you know, just living off what they could make in these, these crappy little clubs. Sure. But he sent them down to... Um, to Florida to sort of get healthy, although he told Mary not to go out in the sun because he wanted her to look pale. <laughs> and, I mean, Albert Grossman is a whole other thing because when, when Albert Grossman took Bob Dylan on board, then Bob Dylan had a real powerhouse of management behind him. Yeah. I'm interested in his association with Joan Baez. There's this great quote, on hearing Dylan perform a song, With God on Our Side, Joan later said... I never thought anything so powerful could come out of that little toad. It has the tinge <laughs> it, it of, of post-breakup. I mean, I the breakup was, was, was pretty awful because you could actually see it on film. Yeah. Joan was the queen of folk music. Yeah. She, her guitar technique was fabulous. Her voice was fabulous. She looked like an angel. She sounded like an angel. And she took Bob sort of under her wing in that, by all accounts, he was like a... Um, he had this boyish quality to him when he was uh, when he was young. He was even a lot r- sort of rounder, rounder faced, and mm. women tended to want to mother him and, and take care of him. So she took him under her wing. This is to say, mm, he already had a girlfriend, Susie Rotolo, oh. who was on the cover of Free Will and Bob Dylan. Sure, uh, but Bob was never sort of like a one woman man for very long. Anyway, then he got involved with Joan, and Joan really gave his career a boost and used to introduce him uh, at her concerts, and people would go, who is this guy? And then at the end of it, they'd go, who is that woman we came to see originally? Oh, God. Um, but he invited her on his tour of the UK in 1965, or else she just came, because I think by that time, he was already probably involved with uh, the woman who was going to become his wife. You can see in Don't Look Back, which came out in 67, but was the 65 tour, Joan is always, she's always playing Bob Dylan songs in the background, and he's basically ignoring her the whole time. Oh, yeah, she's in, they're like in hotel rooms and stuff. Yes, yes, and at one point, he's with his best buddy, Bobby Newworth, and this was at the time when Dylan was, the 65, 66 years, he was fueled by amphetamines, and he was writing some of his most brilliant stuff, but he was also at the height of his 
assholedom. Okay. Yeah, nice is word. that a word? Yeah. <laughs> I think he's, you see where I'm going with this. Yes. And and uh, and th- there's a scene where where Joan can't take it anymore and just walks out the door and we never see her again. She goes to the airport and that's the end of their relationship. And you, you hear a few stories like that, don't you, Kerry, of people, and we're jumping ahead slightly in the chronology here, but, but when Dylan is being fated around the world where people will, will, will want an audience with Bob and they'll go into his hotel room, wherever it is, and he will just completely ignore them. You know, it strikes me, talking to you, Kerry Shells, you're a voice actor and in a way Dylan's a bit of a voice actor isn't he he mm. takes uh he makes a choice about how he's going to deliver something i guess i have more tolerance for that now cuz i'm thinking okay he's theatrical he's a performer bringing out the best in whatever he wants to say yeah i think he channels something like the recording of him at the Isle of Wight Festival, uh, which was happening more or less around the same time the Woodstock Festival was happening. Mm. And he's fled Woodstock, where he lived, and they had the Woodstock Festival more or less in Woodstock because they wanted Bob Dylan to play. Oh, right. In typical Dylan fashion, right. he flew out of the country. So contrary. And uh, yeah, and, and went to the Isle of Wight. But he, he was in his sort of tenor, blue moon, you saw me standing alone. Um, <laughs> and you think, wow, to actually go up on stage and sing like that when you've done, how does it feel, you know, when you've been that gay, and then all of a sudden you're, you're that guy. <laughs> no, nobody, who does, that sounds a bit too much like Kermit. <laughs> I did a bit, yeah. But who does that? That. You yeah. know, like Johnny Cash never did that. No. Um, you know, who, who... What a freak. And that's just two of his voices. Yeah, right. Katie, can I just say at this point how glad I am that Kerry is launching into a number of Dylan impersonations. I'm I think so it liberates us <laughs> at some point of our choosing to do the same. <laughs> well, Katie did hers at the beginning. <laughs> and I have, to, I have to take issue with you at some point, so I might as well just do it now. Okay, please. About the Dylan covers. I mean, I, I like a Dylan covers as much as anybody. I've, I've got, you know, hundreds of Dylan covers and they're, and they're mostly great. But there's nobody who sounds like Dylan. As a matter of fact, at Columbia at one point uh, did a press campaign saying nobody does Dylan like Dylan. Now, I know you may, might think and you do think that, that nobody sounds like Dylan. So, blah, you know, what a terrible voice. But the thing about his voice is that it's maybe an acquired taste. And I, when I say voice, I should say voice says, because He's had dozens of different voices, and they, he sounds like what he feels like at the time. And that's, that's what I love about Dylan. Like he's, he's never fake. He's always authentic. That voice is, even if it's that nasal uh, whine that we all use to imitate Dylan, <laughs> which he only used for like two or three years, it's still authentic. Let's talk about Bob's breakthrough with the freewheeling Bob Dylan. Mm. Why does it connect with people? Is it because he softened up enough people with his flop first album? <laughs> well, most people didn't even know he, you know, had a first album. Most people out of New York City. No, freewheeling is just full of classics. It was the beginning of his protest song. Although when he would play uh, "Blowing in the Wind," still in the in the you know the coffee shops and the um, the clubs of Greenwich Village, he would always preface it by saying, "This ain't a protest song." Oh, he hated people calling them protest songs. Why? Because he didn't think it was accurate. Oh, um, he thought they were bigger than that. Like the 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 song "Hard Rain's Gonna Fall," another one of the classics. People said, "Right, so that's about." It, it came out just after the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, mm. and people said to him so it's your cuban missile crisis song it's your song about hard rain it's about nuclear bombs dropping and he said no it's not it's Mm. about a hard rain 
It's about literally, I was writing about a, there's a hard rain that's going to fall. And he was right because there are lines like the pellets of poison are flooding their waters. Now, back then, people were not thinking about that. About you know, that's that's a that's a disaster. 2022 thing. Yeah. And it was about more than that. It's always been about. I mean, his songs have the answer is blowing in the wind is like there is no answer. Whereas people would take it as, oh, the answer is blowing in the wind. You know, it's it's just about here. No, I don't think so. It's it's still blowing in the wind. Right, it's blowing away. It will always be blowing. It's not in the legible. Wind. Exactly. So I think his songs, his great protest songs, and they were used as protest songs. And he was, you know, he's being disingenuous as well because sure. yes, they were protest songs. Right. But then he doesn't like to be pinned down. And and in '65, which I'm sure we'll get to, when he when he did go electric, and people were booing him. He would come up to the mic after an evening of booing, and he would literally, he would say, well, these are all protest songs. <laughs> ah, he's such a troll. He is such a troll. And so when he's hitting the big time with freewheeling, and there he is in New York City, I mean, my goodness, his manager and the record company must have been thinking, we have hit pay dirt here. Let's get him on television. Let's shove him down the throats of the American people. <laughs> so did he have a, a big Ed Sullivan moment? Well, he did and he didn't. He was uh, sold to the Ed Sullivan people, and he went to the rehearsal, and he did two songs. I don't know what the first one was, but the second one was a thing called John Birch Society Blues, hmm. which was a complete piss take of this ultra right wing group, the John Birch Society, and it was all about f- hunting for communists. It's sort of a it's a comedy song. Yeah. The main character is a co- is looking for communists, and he's he's looking everywhere, he even looked you know under my toilet seat, and <laughs> so. Uh, he did the um, rehearsal, and then, as often happened on Ed Sullivan's show, you know, uh, the word would come down from Ed, um, you know, because he made the Rolling Stones change the lyrics to one of their songs. Oh, let's and, spend the night together. Exactly. Let's spend some time. Some, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So people were, you know, and they yeah. shot Elvis from the, you know, uh, from, oh, the, from waist the waist up, up yeah. right? So they said, Bob, could you not sing that song? Could you sing one of your other songs? Because uh, we're a little worried that that might offend certain people. And Dylan, really without a beat, just said. No, I'm not going to uh, not sing that song. I will sing that song. They said, no, you, you can't sing that song. And he said, well, and he didn't have any advisors around him. You know, he was just there. He said, well, then I'm out of here. And he left. He left the Ed Sullivan show. And people, that's just like a minor detail of his career. But that was sort of like... Emblematic. It was emblematic because he, he did make it his way. And despite that, he is already, even in those early stages, having a seismic influence on other musicians around the world. You can listen to the Beatles and you can pretty much hear the point where the Beatles have started listening to Dylan. Absolutely. Well, do you know about Bob Dylan and turning on the Beatles to Cannabis in 64? No. Tell us more. Oh, well, this has been uh, documented by, you know, all the Beatles who were there. It's not it's not apocryphal. So Bob shows up. The Beatles are in America in 64. They're staying at the uh, whatever hotel. And uh, he, he pops in and he gets out his uh, his cannabis and starts rolling a joint and uh, and lights up. And they say, oh, is that the that's the marijuana stuff that we've heard so much about because they were on all on their pills and things. And he said, well, I thought you guys were already smoking because uh, in I Want to Hold Your Hand, the chorus is, um, I get high, I get high, I get high. 
And they said, no, it's I can't hide. I can't hide. <laughs> and he says, oh, so you guys never tried this? And uh, he said, no. So he gi- he turns on the Beatles. There's so many songs, aren't there, from the, that, that era of Beatles where you can just hear Dylan. You know, if you think about Hide Your Love Away, that's the, that's the classic where Lennon has just sucked in and absorbed all this Dylan. Absolutely. I mean, d- his relationship with Lennon was was very. Uh, it, it was it was it was more competitive than friendly. I would say his relationship with Paul w- was was not strong, but of course his relationship with George was like incredibly uh, close and mm. and and loving. And like big brother and little brother, weren't they? Those yes, two? absolutely. I mean, George. W- if you see the Get Back documentary, half the time George is breaking into Bob Dylan songs. You know, when they're yeah. when they're not talking to each other. That's a good point. Let's talk about when Bob goes electric. What was the big whoop about that? Because people were screaming Judas from the audience. Yeah, yeah. What? Why were people so invested in Bob staying away from that devilish rock and roll? First of all, just the look. So back in 63, when he first appeared at Newport, it was work shirt, baggy jeans, work boots, man of the people. And this is the Newport Folk Festival. The Newport Folk Festival, which is which is where the uh, East Coast intellectuals and their children went to to hear folk music, the, the music of the people, the left lefty music of the people. The next year, his his clothes were a little cleaner, a little neater, but he was still, he was debuting things like uh, Mr. Tambourine Man, which was already a, a new, but that was acoustic, a, a, new, sure. a new way. People didn't quite understand it, but they thought, we love you, Bob. And at the end of his set in 64, he said, I love you, I love you to the, to the audience. And they loved him back. You know, it was a huge love affair. In 65, this is just talking about sartorially, in 65, yeah. he shows up in a black leather jacket, Skin-tight jeans, polka dot shirt, and beetle boots. And he plugs in his electric guitar. But again, going back to people's relationship with music back then. Now, we all know it was the financial and emotional relationship was different because you had to buy the albums. Mm. So you felt that you kind of, you know, you owned the album. His picture's on the album. You kind of own him. Yeah. You know, he's in your life. He's in your room. He's in your bedroom. You know, you're listening to him on, you have to put something on the record player. But here's my, here's my metaphor. Take it or leave it. So think about Barack Obama. I stayed up late to watch him give that acceptance speech in Grant Park, you know, uh, in Chicago. Yes. And it's like, it, it was, was so, magic, It was right? so emotional. It was and, so emotional. I was yeah. weeping. Everyone was weeping. Yeah. So imagine that you've been there. You've seen Barack Obama. And the next day they say come back to grand park come back there's going to be there's going to be more and you come back and you're in the audience everybody is waiting 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 and here comes the guy that you that you you know is going to save everything the guy that you love and Donald Trump walks out. Okay. <laughs> that's kind of... Okay, that's, you know, that, that, that's a gut punch. That's a gut punch. Yeah, but that's what they felt like. I, I really do believe when he plugged in... Right. And this was the devil... Not just not the devil's music. This was commercial music. This okay. was capitalism. This was... You know, pandering this was or pandering. something? Pandering. It was pop music. I mean, when he did his tour of the UK um, the next the next year, they interviewed people in the audience. I think it was in Sheffield. Um, what he would do in the first half, he'd play acoustic. And even though it was stuff like Mr. Tambourine Man, stuff that was really odd, weird, non-protesty stuff, but it would just be him and his acoustic guitar. Then him and the band, mm. the band that eventually became known as the band, would would plug in and and just... Tape, bring the house down. And I, I, I've talked to people who've been at those concerts and they've said, 
I've never heard such a, a loud noise. And I, I said to, to one person, uh, Michael Gray, who's a big Beatles um, commentator, I said, well, you, you've certainly heard such a loud noise after that, right? And he said, no. <laughs> he said, I've never heard such a loud noise. Now, that's in his mind. I know that Dylan imported um, amplifiers that had never been used in the UK before. Mm. They'd never been used by the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. They were really, really loud. Anyway, this one guy says at the end, Bob Dylan was a bastard in the second half. (laughs) (laughs) And that's when they yelled Judas, of course, in in Manchester in 66. There's a great story, whether it's true or not, I don't know, involving the um, British folk musician Ewan McColl. Oh, yeah. He's the father of of the great Kirsty McColl. And he was a purist, wasn't he? He was an absolute folk purist. Mm. And there's a story that Bob Dylan phoned him up at his house because he wants to plug into the motherload of this classic English folk scene. And Ewan McColl is so disgusted by Dylan going electric that when Dylan phones his house, he just tells him to fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't heard that story, actually. I mean, I know that they hung out together when he came here in in 61 and was just a struggling young folkie. And Ewan McColl taught him uh, all sorts of songs that he stole. Yeah, there you go. That sense of betrayal, Katie. Wow. Let's talk about Subterranean Homesick Blues, the Mm. video where he, I guess, invented rock videos? Well, pretty much. I mean, it was his idea to, I mean, it's become iconic that anyone who doesn't know the video, you can find it easily on on YouTube. But the the idea of uh, holding up um, printed cards that have one word from each line Mm. and then dropping them, uh, which I think Richard... Curtis stole from Love Actually. Love Actually it's right? become a meme. It's become a meme, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but Bob invented that. And uh, Joan, he was still with uh, Joan Baez at the time. And uh, Joan Baez and Donovan and um, a few of his mates and Allen Ginsberg were the ones who wrote uh, all the all the signs out, and and he drops them as. But he's so cool. I mean, to to actually drop them at the right time. If you look at it, I thought that watching it, oh, and he never man. picks up the one behind the one he wants to pick up either. No, <laughs> it's uh, you asked where it was shot, Katie. It was yes. shot in an alley behind the Savoy Hotel. Oh, so it's in London that they yeah. shoot it. Yeah, it's still there. That alley is still there. Yeah, I think I walk on that alley quite regularly. At what point does? It's unfair to say he loses that initial surge of power, mm. but there is a point after the mid-60s where things certainly change for him. Yeah, well, he was going so crazy as as uh, July 1966 approached, and he was doing, you know, this is on record, a lot of drugs. Nobody is quite sure, probably like every drug under the sun. I know that he, the word has it that he was doing LSD way before the Beatles. He finished doing LSD way before the Beatles. He was a big amphetamine man. Some people said he was a big heroin man. Um, he has never spoken about this. But in July 1966, he's out staying at Albert Grossman's place in Woodstock. And he was a big motorcycle man. And everybody said... Bob can't drive a motorcycle. You shouldn't let him on a motorcycle. You know, can you imagine? You know, his mind is just full of this and that and the other. Anyway, he crashes his motorcycle. Some people say it was a very bad crash. Some people say the crash never happened. There's a million different stories about it. The theory is that he was coming off whatever drugs he was I on. I see. Because he never went to hospital, did he? He never went to hospital. I right? see. And okay. he didn't tour again. I mean, talking about what was he going to do next, he didn't tour again for eight years. Now, his career wasn't even eight years old. He still kept making music, but he, that's when he stayed at home 
got into country. He was already married to Sarah, his wife, who, uh, Katie, you were talking about, you know, the various... The ladies. Ladies. Yeah, Sexy Bob. Sexy Bob and his uh, swordsman ways. Yes, well, after um, uh, Joan, um, he was involved briefly with Edie Sedgwick. Yeah, so oh. she was the Warhol superstar. Exactly. Who was, yeah, and a people bit of a say that he plate. wrote uh, Like a Rolling Stone about her. Um, that uh, Didn't he know, write Just Like a Woman? People say that. People say he wrote Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat. Oh, it, was, right. it was a very brief but intense uh, relationship. And, and at that point, he, you know, he went into the Warhol place and did one of those self-portrait things where you oh, just... Oh, they called them screen tests. Screen tests, that's right. Screen tests where Warhol would just set up a, a static camera and that's then, right. I mean, basically invented reality television. Just yeah. say whatever comes into your head. Was Dylan also involved with Nico in the Velvet Underground? Well, I've heard that rumored, but I've never really... I know really, she was with Iggy Pop uh, for yeah, a while. Yeah, I've never really bought it. And same with Marianne Faithful. Oh, uh, she's okay. always denied that, and All I right. I kind of believe it. But uh, he was married to uh, Sarah for 11 and a half years. They had right. four kids plus an adopted girl of Sarah's. And then another marriage was uncovered some years ago. He was married to one of his backing singers, Carolyn Dennis, for uh, six years and had a kid. He seems to be very close to his kids. For that 11 and a half year period, he was absolutely, definitely convinced he was going to be a good guy and a, you know, a, 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 real, a family man. It didn't come naturally is what it you're indicating. Yes. No, it didn't. And I, I admire him you know, for, for that. Putting in, putting in the legwork. He, he put in the time. And, and he does have these good relationships with his, with his kids. Yeah. So my Bob Dylan album, the one where I finally clicked, and this was some years after it came out, is Blood on the Tracks. Mm -hmm. This was something he wrote about the disintegration of his marriage with Sarah. Very jarring boing boing from tender love songs to sadistic cruelty. Mm. So I guess, you know, the bad times definitely fuel good songs. What are your thoughts about this album? Because this was a bit of a rebirth for him. It's heartbreak set to music. You know, anyone who's ever gone through that. Um, Jacob Dylan described it once as my parents talking, oh. <laughs> which is kind of awful yeah. if, you, if you've heard the album. I mean, it is a wonderful album, and he's always denied that it was about his marriage. Oh, he would. And I always assumed that the marriage was over, but you know, it wasn't. Oh, no! Yeah. Imagine that, because those songs are harsh. I know. Imagine I mean, coming home and looking at her face after she's heard that stuff. I know, but then he, he went wind. on... To, exactly, Idiot Wind. But he went on to write Sarah, which actually I think is one of his less good songs. Well, I mean, I don't, I'm not a, a huge fan because it's, it's very specific. Yeah. But apparently he sang it to her okay. in the studio. He's, trying to pa- he's just trying to patch some stuff up Well, there. yeah, exactly, exactly. But they finally split up when he did uh, the Rolling Thunder review with all these people. They went on the road, and everything sort of fell apart, and Dylan started drinking more. And then at one point, they're, they're recording this concert. It's another thing where Sarah is at the side of the stage with apparently a few of the kids, and it's pouring down with rain, and Dylan is in a foul mood, really hungover, and he sings Idiot Wind oh. to her. Oh. In the wings. And by all accounts, that really was the end of it. So many discussions about Bob Dylan and Kerry end up in that sort of rock journalism trope where you have to name your favourite Bob Dylan song or album or look. And reluctant though I am to do that, it's exactly what I'm going to ask you. Now, you're allowed to have a podium if you like. You're allowed to have a, a, a bronze, silver and gold. Where would you go? Because it's a personal thing, isn't it, with Bob? 
Yeah, I mean, as I as I said before, I'm I'm um, wherever you came in on Dylan is really pretty much where you end up. So, at my uh, wedding, I uh, recited "To Be Alone with You." Oh, give us a little burst. Uh, to be alone with you at the close of the day, with only you in view, while evening slips away, I'll always thank the Lord. Though life's pleasures are few, I get my sweet reward to be alone with you. So that's the first thing. I have trouble doing that without cracking up. And I I announced to the audience, there's there's more verses, but it's it's basically more like that. And I announced that it was was written by a favorite poet of mine who was a... um, uh, a Midwestern mystic. <laughs> and um, people came up to me afterwards and said, who is that poet? They really wanted to know who the poet <laughs> Also, I point people towards his, his last album, which just came out, I guess, a couple of years ago now. And he did a song called Murder Most Foul, which is really, in some ways, a summation of, of all that he's already done. It's a song about the Kennedy assassination, and it's 17 minutes long. Oh, okay. And it was his first Billboard number one. So he got his first Billboard number one at the age of 79. With this song about the Kennedy assassination, which at first, like all Dylan songs, at first glimpse, it's not what it seems to be. And the the first six or eight lines are terrible. They're like some high school student (laughs) writing about the murder of, you know, it it was a dark day in Dallas. It's terrible. I still don't understand why it has to be so terrible. But (laughs) it goes on to encompass basically all the stuff you guys deal with in your podcast, really. I mean, they're all there. I mean, Billy Mm. Joel sadly isn't there, but it's it's more about (laughs) people like Wolfman Jack and... There's all sorts of conspiracy theories in it about, and Kennedy sort of goes to hell and is talking to the people who assassinated him. And and it ends up very hopeful. He starts quoting Beethoven, and it's beautiful and mysterious and, and weird. Kerry, why was Bob Dylan so revolutionary and galvanizing beyond the folk scene and across now rock music and the arts in general? Well, I'd have to say it's like asking why Shakespeare is still so revolutionary and galvanizing. And I'm, I'm not being funny. An awful lot of people believe, and I'm one of them, there is a direct line from Shakespeare to Bob Dylan. Uh, we had uh, James Shapiro, who's a noted Shakespeare academic, on our podcast. He also happens to be a huge Bob Dylan fan. And he said, yeah, he said they're cut from the same cloth. They are both weird and they are both timeless. He may not be that good, but... It's like being in the same room with Shakespeare. I'm wondering, does he still have the capacity to surprise even at his creaky prune stage? Well, he may be a creaky prune. No, he's definitely a creaky prune. But yes, he does because, I mean, I don't know what he's going to do. But according to people who've seen the first leg of the tour, which was, you know, a few months ago, because Bob is still touring like mad. He's 81. Hmm. They said he started talking to the audience again. He went about 20 years without talking to the audience. He wouldn't even look at the audience. Sometimes he would play with his back to the audience. And now he does little comedy routines, you know, like, <laughs> well, it's great to be in well, it's, well, it's great to be in uh, Cincinnati. Uh, you know, people don't know, but Cincinnati was the home. Of, you know, he'll, he'll do a little routine about wherever he plays. Well, because he's a radio DJ now, so he has yes. his patter down. Yeah. But so who the hell knows? Uh, it could be it could be dreadful, but I'm, I'm thinking that it'll be great. So his legacy is impossible to ignore, isn't it? Yeah, it's, um, I, I don't want to sound like a, uh, a squeaky record, but, uh, <laughs> but it, it is like Shakespeare. I mean, people quote Shakespeare 
every day around the world without realizing they're quoting Shakespeare. And I'm sure there's people quoting Bob Dylan. And in some ways, Bob Dylan is sort of popular culture of the, of the 60s. Um, and, uh, and the 60s is a, a seminal you know, decade. And, and for that reason, I think he'll, he'll always be with us. Carrie Shell, I do believe that you have made a very good case for Bob Dylan. Thank you, Carrie Shell. Oh, thank you. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. Well, thank goodness for Kerry Shale, because I do believe that he's yanked me over across the finish line to become a born-again Dylan convert. How about you? Yeah, the same, Katie. I am going to go back to that mid-60s period. I think all those classic albums, I would love to be able to do not only one Dylan impression as good as <laughs> Kerry, but his full range. That might be something I work on before we see each other again. <laughs> oh, I wait with bated breath. You know, one of the things that Dylan is so impressive is that he's not content with being the poet of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and forevermore, the Shakespeare of our age, if you buy into what Carrie Shale is uh, selling, but also the breadth of his extracurricular activities. There's acting, there's painting, and there's the 2016 Nobel Prize for Literature. Yeah, and in a classically Bob way, Katie, I've got a feeling he didn't even acknowledge the fact that he'd been given the Nobel Prize for Literature for at least 10 days. No, you don't want to look too keen about that. And in fact, did he even show up? He sent Patty Smith. He did, he yeah. sent Patty. Uh, Patty will do a good job. And um, she sang a little Bob Diddy. A hard rain's going to fall. Good choice, Patty. Good I choice, if that Patty. Was her choice or Bob's. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I really enjoyed, Katie, about today's episode is the number of connections to previous episodes of Fire we have recorded. Off the top of my head, Elvis, Chubby Checker. Is Shakespeare in there? Oh, no. no I guess it's I free, free Billy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe you've got an idea, thinking of British Beatlemania, of a guest as good as Kerry. If you do, contact us on social media. As always, we are at Spread That Fire on Twitter and Instagram. If you prefer, you can email us fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. And if you want another podcast to listen to, you might try Death of a Rock Star. It's 
immersive narrative storytelling that tells the stories of the world's biggest musicians. There are episodes about Elvis, David Bowie, Billie Holiday, and so many more. And our very own Tom Fordyce may, she said coyly, have written some of them. Tom, which one is your favorite, do you think? I did love writing these, Katie. Um, I've got a huge soft spot for the Otis Redding one because I love Otis Redding. Mm. Sometimes it was the ones that surprised me. I hadn't been as big a fan of George Michael as some people are. And then I wrote that script and I began to love him Mm. dearly. But I think I also enjoyed doing the Nick Drake one, the Jeff Buckley one, and the John Lennon one. And so if you'd like to give it a listen, just search for Death of a Rockstar wherever you get your podcasts. And next week, where are we going, Tom Fordyce? Wir fahren nach Berlin. Scheiße. <laughs> My German or the episode. <laughs> Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.